Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Hi, this is Burl Bear, host of True Crime Uncensored. Really have a spectacular show for you today. Our guest is Dan Lawton, author of Above the Ground. This is really an incredible book, an amazing true crime story, and he is a fascinating guest. Now, there are a few audio issues. He's calling in from San Diego. I'm calling in from Loon Lake, Washington, and Mark Boyer is in the studio. It's the story of a shocking, brutal murder and the arrest of an innocent man, his coerced confession, his escape from prison, where he comes to America and becomes a successful car sales. However, that's not the end of the story. He is compelled to face those charges and fight them in the United States and in Great Britain. What a story. This story has all the ingredients of a big-budget action movie, but it's real life. So let's get rolling with uh, Mark C.G. Boyer welcoming our guest. Thank you, Burl, and thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. I've been a practicing lawyer for about 35 years, and I've represented uh, a good number of plaintiffs and probably about the same number of defendants. So if you'd be kind enough to give us the backstory and what the crime was, if this guy was falsely arrested, what would be appreciated? Well, in 1978, it was a very uh, broad time of the Troubles. There were hundreds of IRA men who were incarcerated in the Mace Prison and other places, and they were really locked in a battle with the British government over the conditions of their confinement. They viewed themselves as political prisoners, as POWs, and uh, for several years they had been treated that way by the government, allowed to wear their own clothing, uh, excused from work in the prison and other prerogatives that were afforded to prisoners of war under the Geneva Conventions. The Thatcher government came in and changed that. The IRA prisoners protested that. They started a series of protests in the prisons, uh, starting with the so-called blanket protest in which they refused to wear prison issue uniforms and went naked and wore blankets for warmth. Um, the so-called dirty protests and um, all of it created an atmosphere in which there was great hostility between the prisoners and the guards and the prison officials. And the IRA started assassinating prison officials on the outside. One of those was Albert Miles. He was the deputy warden, or what they called the uh, deputy governor of the Mays prison, where the vast body of IRA prisoners were incarcerated. He was shot and killed in his home on November 26, 1978, in front of his wife and his 21-year-old son, Alan, by two IRA gunmen who kicked in the front door and shot him down um, just behind the vestibule door of his home. Investigation proved fruitless. They couldn't find uh, the people who had done it. And eventually, Kevin Barry Art, who was known to them and disliked by them, was picked up and brought to a place called Castle Lay, which was a notorious place where many coerced confessions were gotten. Eventually, he did confess under coercion, and he was tried in 1982 and 1983, along with about 35 other defendants. Certainly the, the longest and the most expensive and um, most difficult trial in the history of Ireland. It lasted for the better part of 10 months. Nearly all of the defendants were convicted by a judge sitting without a jury, Basil Kelly was his name, and he imposed sentences of 4,000 plus years of prison collectively on the various defendants. Kevin Barry Art was taken in a Chinook helicopter by the British Army up to the maze, and seven weeks later he escaped from there. And That must um, not have been easy. How, how did he manage to do that? 
Uh, the IRA had been planning it for months, unknown to him, until the morning of the escape, uh, when he learned of it, and I, I think he was added to the escape at the last minute, almost as an afterthought. Prisoners who had life sentences were given preference in being allowed to go on the escape or not. It was a mass escape. And they packed 37 prisoners into the back of a, um, a food truck that went around to the various uh, H blocks inside the prison. The um, organizers of the escape had taken the driver hostage, disarmed the guards, taken their uniforms, put them on, and the idea was to load the back of the truck with prisoners from H7 and pass the various internal security gates until they got to the outer gate, at which point they hoped they could um, bluff their way through and just drive out the front gate, impersonating prison guards, and then and split everybody up. It went badly at the front gate. Um, there was shooting. There was a melee between guards and prisoners, and a number of them got away. One of them was Kevin Berryard, and eventually he made it out of the country and made it to California, and he lived here for several years underground. But the British government never stopped trying to hunt down every last man who had participated in this escape. It was international news when it happened. It was highly embarrassing to the Thatcher government. And um, methodically, and over time, they hunted down many of them, and they eventually got Kevin Berry Art in 1992, uh, whereupon a long legal battle ensued in the federal courts in California to try to save him from extradition. He flew from uh, Dublin, Ireland, to New York, and then on to San Francisco on a passport that had been provided to him by the IRA. He arrived in San Francisco and got into the city. He met um, one of his co-escapees there, a guy named Jimmy Smith, and the two of them began the process of um, creating aliases for themselves and lives uh, for themselves. Well, what did the guy do? Did he work like a taco time or something? How did he survive? He did various things. He, um, he worked as a private investigator. He did... Um, automotive repair that he was very good at and by the time he moved to San Diego he um, had become the most successful car salesman at the car dealership in Pacific Beach where he worked which is called Mossy Ford. Why is law enforcement more interested in getting a conviction than they are in getting the correct person? It's a great question I think there are several reasons or several different answers to that question. Um, one of them is that Police are looking for convictions in many instances, and so are prosecutors. And um, if police feel they can get a confession out of a suspect, it can be closed uh, quickly. And no further investigation is done because they've got a confession in the bag. Even though there might be evidence that exonerates, contradicts the confession, which may have been false or coerced, as a practical matter, the work of the detectives stops. And um, in a system that has emergency laws like the Northern Ireland of the 70s and 80s, getting convictions was a very high priority for the British government. Their goal was to smash the IRA by any means necessary. And um, their reliance on confessions uh, in a way was natural. You had detectives who were expected by the superiors to obtain confessions, and then turn those confessions into convictions and turn those convictions into, in many cases, they didn't necessarily have that person 
in custody, they might have had someone else in custody who could be made to confess, someone who they didn't like, someone who they suspected of having bad associations, who could be gotten off the street. Um, you know, the IRA became a smaller and more elusive force starting in the late 70s, and uh, in many instances, the police and the British Army were not able to get their hands on the people that were doing the shooting and the bombing and the killing. What prompted you to do this book, and how the hell did you start researching it? I met Ken Berryard in 1992 in San Diego when he was being held in the federal jail uh, downtown. At that time, I was 30 years old, and I was a lawyer at a law firm that did um, asylum applications for refugees who were fleeing oppression in their home countries. Kevin Berryard had a public defender at the time who was going to be getting out. Uh, he had a conversation with me and said, I understand you guys do asylum applications for refugees. Why don't you go talk to this guy? And I did, and um, I met him in June 1992 and um, got to know him. And as I got to learn about his case, at some point, the germ formed in my head that, you know, someday wouldn't this make a really good story, if only it could be told uh, correctly. Our attorney-client relationship ended in the year 2000. Um, he got a very prominent and renowned lawyer, Jim Brosnahan, to work his case pro bono in the federal courts in California. But Kevin Berryart and I stayed friends. We stayed in touch. And when I got down to working on the book in earnest in 2018, I had access to all of the court records on both sides of the Atlantic. I started making trips to Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. I started interviewing witnesses and um, organizing what really was a lot of them, 125 bankers boxes worth. Well, from a research standpoint, i got to ask you, I'm afraid I might know the answer, you went into road blocking uh, from the U.K. on this book. I went into a lot of roadblocks. Uh, the hardest people to deal with were the British government in the way of trying to get information, trying to conduct interviews, trying to pull documents. I just ran into an absolute brick wall that was, uh, that had painted on it in large letters, national security. The men of the former IRA were not much better. I did get to speak to some of them and some of them kindly consented to interviews and uh, were candid with me. But in large part, the men of the former IRA are not interested in doing interviews. They feel learned by what happened with the Boston College episode. I didn't have any sympathy one way or the other. I wanted to get to the truth and tell a really good story. I, I didn't feel I had any ideological action. Right. I think the key was getting Irish witnesses to even be open to sitting down for an interview is having a local person writer and um i had the good fortune of having a couple of people who who fit that bill and um i got to sit down with some witnesses who were who were very open with me and i was grateful for that but um i also went into a roadblock maybe not so much a roadblock but just it has passed since these things happened a number of witnesses um are dead and gone yeah their their bodies are laying up in the the Milltown Cemetery and other cemeteries, the Carn Money Cemetery. So I really had to bring some things back to life using documents and photographs and witness accounts of people that were talking to me about things that happened a very long time ago. Uh, did you 
during your research come across something that made you go, wow, I didn't expect that? I, I did, and it came from the most unexpected source, and that was the person of Alan Miles, the son of the murder victim, who had seen his dad shot down uh, that night in November 1978. He, unsolicited, out of left field, sent me a copy of a secret government report that had been shared with him by something called the Historical Inquiries Team, which was a team set up by the British government to try to bring some peace to families who had family members who'd been the victim of a troubles-related murder. This report had the results of a more recent investigation of the Albert Miles murder that showed that detectives had in their possession the murder weapons that were used that night and had not given them to the defense in the trial of Kevin Barry Art. One of those weapons did not match the description that had been provided to the court of the weapon during the trial. Whoa. I gave this information to Kevin Barry Art and to his Irish lawyers, Fiona Doherty and Andrew Moriarty of Belfast, two very talented lawyers. And they went to the court, the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal. They presented this evidence and other evidence, which included that the detectives had tampered with their notes of their interrogations and then lied about it during the trial in 1983. And with that evidence, the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal threw out the conviction in May of 2020. So that came as a complete surprise and from a source that you wouldn't, expect it might come from um, the son of the murder victim. Wow. The case itself is amazing. The book is fantastic. Uh, the the reviews are well, well earned for all your efforts. I can't imagine anything worse than being falsely accused and falsely convicted. It was very hard on him, and uh, I think a, a lesser person would have succumbed to you know, suicide or depression uh, or just wouldn't have been able to bear up under the tremendous pressure of having an entire government, two governments, by the time he got here, trying to ruin uh, your life. And on top of that, in Belfast, uh, there, were assassin- there were assassination attempts against his life by loyalist elements, um, probably with the collusion of the RUC, the Royalist or Constabulary. And he narrowly escaped getting killed three times. Um, wow. So he's he's really been through hell, and I I write in the prologue of the book that um, if his story was to be about a kid who navigates his way through a, a jungle where there are monsters who are trying to kill him, and eventually he emerges safely the other side uh, despite the monsters' best efforts to kill him, and they nearly did kill him. Is this it's a story that's both? It's also an inspiring story because of how it turned out for him and his resilience. So it covers just about every emotion, human emotion you can deal with. It must have also cost him a great deal of time and personal investment to do this book. I, uh, I got the rights in 2016, and I thought initially, very naively, I was going to work on this book on, on weekends and at night. Yeah, and, on uh, the weekend, yeah. <laughs> and it, it became apparent pretty quickly that just wasn't going to happen. I didn't have that capability. I didn't have um, that kind of talent, I suppose. And the volume of material that I needed to research and then distill and write about was, was greater than I could do uh, at night and on weekends. But in 2018, um, 
you know, the stars aligned for me in my law practice, and I realized, it, you know, it's now or never. Uh, so I sat down my um, team and off. I told them what I was doing. I gave them as much notice as I could and helped them find other jobs. And I worked full-time in this project for the next 16 months, and I uh, had several research trips. I interviewed a lot of people. I reviewed and analyzed a lot of documents and um, did a lot of writing and then a lot of editing. And uh, my first draft was 260,000 pages. It was way too long ever to become a real book. So, um, well, it, it wound up uh, just over 100,000, but... Um, it did. Uh, it did take some time, and um, that time wound up exceeding 16 months um, with various rounds of editing. And the people of Wild Blue Press were just absolutely great. They were wonderful to work with, highly professional, and uh, I, I was so lucky to um, have been offered this opportunity by that publishing house. As you were well aware, True Crime uh, at one time was a real stepchild of the publishing industry. Things have somewhat changed out through crimes everywhere. We're kind of going, huh? I mean, Burl and Mark, the two of you have been a big part of that. The number of the market for books and stories about true crime shows that are on television, like I think the fascination of the audience with, with true crime. And the, the thing about a book such as this, unlike your standard husband kills wife, chops her up and, you know, sells the, uh, the meat to the neighbors, is uh, 100 years from now or 50 years from now, this book will still be consulted as a historical document, uh, which a lot of our, you know, Burger in the Family books won't be, unless they're consulted from the standpoint of procedural investigation. Also, if you look at another category of crime, which is state crime, which is what the people don't often think about. Uh, states commit crimes uh, as often, or maybe more often, quite more often than individuals, and people don't often think about that. It's certainly true, and as a kid growing up in um, Southern California, suburban Southern California, during the 60s and 70s, I had a very sheltered and naive existence. I mean, the uh, police were deeply respected in our community, so were courts, so was the law. The idea that uh, police could be sectarian or uh, corrupt or brutal with suspects, that courts could be dishonest, in the service of a political agenda or to oppress a minority, you know, it was, it was just impossible or unthinkable uh, for me to believe. And the most unthinkable thing of all, maybe that would have been for me was the idea that someone could confess to something that he had not done. You know, yeah. why would you confess to something that you had not done? Uh, you know, obviously someone who confessed is guilty. An innocent person denies it and uh, resists interrogation, says, hell no, I didn't do it. And throughout history, I had to learn that that idea is wrong. And well, I'll tell you, in Los Angeles County alone, history of it. in Los Angeles County alone, there are over 1,000 false confessions per month in L.A. County. I wouldn't doubt and it. And you say, why is that? People think, I'll tell them whatever they want to hear now, and clear it up later, just let me go home. Uh, that's it, in a nutshell, really. I mean, uh, and I think the study of coerced confessions has become more, there, there's a lot more scholarship about it than there once was. Um, there was a Stanford University study that was 
done in the very recent past that found that of the cases in which an innocent person was sentenced for a capital crime, the number of those convictions that were based on a false confession was about 25%. You know, that's an awful lot. Uh, you know, there must be something to it. You know, why would somebody confess to something that they didn't do? And you hit the nail on the head when you said uh, the, a suspect can choose what he or she perceives as the lesser of two evils. The first evil is, I'm going to, they've got all the cards, um, you know, I'm going down for life or something as terrible, um, and my family will suffer. Or I can confess, I can tell them what they want to hear, I can make all this hard treatment stop, I can go back to my cell, and I'll be out, you know, in a few years, because that's what they told me. It's a natural human reaction to take the second option. Psychologists have a label called immediate instrumental gain, uh, and that's a benefit promised by interrogators, which seems to the captive uh, to be better than the consequences of resisting, especially when uh, scared, tired, and disoriented. And, you know, the amount of time you want to spend looking at the phenomenon, of course, confessions is unlimited. I mean, uh, the, you know, the Salem witch trials, um, the Spanish Inquisition, to the shame of our country, frankly, the case of um, Mr. Salahi from Mauritania, who spent 14 years at Guantanamo Bay, um, who was innocent of anything, but confessed over and over under uh, severe duress, under the enhanced interrogation techniques that were put in place by the Bush administration. And in the end, you know, he was sent home in 2016, that's, that's only seven years ago, never charged with any crime, um, and later wrote a book about his experience called Guantanamo Diary, in which he said, the problem is you can't just admit to something you haven't done. You need to deliver the details, which you can't when you haven't done anything. It's not just, yes, I did. It doesn't work that way. You have to make up a complete story that makes sense to the dumbest dummies. One of the hardest <laughs> things to do is to tell an untruthful story and maintain it, and that is exactly where I was stuck. So this is a, a timeless phenomenon, one I think has come under more scrutiny in recent times, and, uh, Burl, your mention of the L.A. County statistic is, is part of that. He was in federal prison waiting extradition for how long? He spent the better part of four years in federal jail awaiting a trial on his extradition case. Uh, he came out on bail in January of 1996, um, had to go back in when the initial ruling of the court went against him, and then came out again when the Ninth Circuit reversed that ruling uh, in 1998 and uh, has stayed free uh, since that time. He's up a residence here in California, and he says where he's going to stay. He's lawfully present in the United States. He's a refugee with an, un an unadjudicated asylum application. Homeland Security renews his work permit by clockwork every year. He's got a thriving business. Uh, he travels freely throughout the U.S., goes through TSA checkpoints everywhere he goes, and um, he's, he's made a remarkable life here in California. Well, he knew he could never go home again. Did he get a chance to say goodbye to his folks? He did. Uh, they said goodbye one night in a little cottage in Donegal, um, his mom and dad managed to travel there clandestinely, and um, they stayed up all night. I think it might have been New Year's Eve. And um, they said goodbye. They all cried. 
it was real sad and uh, he left and he couldn't communicate with them or be in touch with them because he was, um, I think the number one fugitive or considered by the British government to be the number one fugitive in the world. Um, and eventually after he was arrested and put in jail here, I managed to, um, patch a phone call through to his mom and dad in Belfast and, uh, and they got to talk in the first, for the first time, uh, Wow. Have, uh, have you been approached yet uh, for any one regarding uh, adaptation for miniseries and that sort of thing? There was a film studio, a big film studio in 2019 that acted really interested and uh, came on really strong. And I, I met with their um, VP in charge of film production uh, in L.A. And then right before Thanksgiving that year, we had a a Zoom call between her and my agent and me, and at the end of that Zoom call, I felt really good because the studio was promising to send over terms. They were going to send over a, a draft agreement, and then I never heard from them again. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow! They, they just the ghosted me. Never you know, and I I learned a good lesson about Hollywood. You know, I get this is the way people work. They they tell you they love you, love you, love you, and then you never hear from them again. Uh, we yep. had a, a yep. former host, guest co-host, uh, Howard Lapidus, uh, entertainment manager, and he always said, you don't have anything until you see it on the screen. I mean, just the, the number of disappointments and setbacks, the people that don't get back to you, the people that ghost you, I mean, you guys know what I'm, what I'm talking about because you're oh, yeah. successful creative people, but the most successful creative people have had an awful lot of rejection and been told yes or you know, they love the work product, and then, you know, it turns out not to be the case. So, you know what I'm yeah. describing. I just uh, had one recently as I was weeping on Mark's shoulder about where I had a wonderful offer from a British company, and they sent the contract, and I was reading the contract, and there were so many violations of the law <laughs> in the contract. And I wrote back, and I said, I thought you knew what you were doing. If you do know what you're doing, you know that you're trying to cheat me out of thousands of dollars. <laughs> if you don't know what you're doing, why are you sending me this contract in the first place? Um, I spent uh, 40 years in software development, and um, I was asked by a youngster to go to class and talk about my career. And I was asked, what's the hardest thing? in what you do and i said you you have to be able to accept the thousand attempts before it as failure you have to be able to accept failure 99.9 percent .9 of the time there, there are people that have a stomach for that and can because of their resiliency get through that and and prevail and there are a lot of people who don't have the stomach for it that's and correct there were times that i wondered which one i was yeah. yeah, well, you know, if, uh, the, thing that, the great thing about being an author is it's helpful if you're single and dating because you're so used to rejection you can handle just about anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my fiancé, uh, Kelly, has always been um, an uncompensated uh, editor, proofreader, cheerleader, and uh, I should also say therapist because there were times when I was quite discouraged that, 
just because so Lamel Brooks was asked what's the most difficult part about making a film and he said punching all those little holes along the side <laughs> okay yeah. tell the audience again the name of the book where to get it the book is Above the Ground a true story of the troubles in Northern Ireland it's available on Amazon in hardcover paperback or on Kindle in a Kindle version you can also find it uh, on the Wild Blue Press website, uh, we're going to have a live event uh, in store at Warwick's La Jolla, which is uh, a bookstore here in San Diego, uh, where I live, on September 7th. But the book is available now online. We're shipping copies. We're, we're selling it, and uh, we're very excited about it. Well, I don't blame you for being excited about it. We're, we're, we're very honored that uh, you've been on our program. Well, guys, about, it's my honor. Everything about the book is just tremendous. And uh, we're, we're really happy for you. I uh, hope it goes very well. Are you going to write another one, or have you had enough of the stress? <laughs> I, I haven't had enough of it. I, I wanted, I've got some other books that I want to write. Um, I, I'm going to try a novel next. Uh, I have the idea already, and um, I, I appreciate your asking. But, uh, but I would say to the aspiring writer, you know, if I was going to speak to a group of them, I would say in my opening remarks, all right, uh, those of you who have paid for this hour, I'm going to give you the best piece of advice right at the top. Don't do it. If you, leave, if, you, if you leave now, you'll get your money back and you'll leave with my best wishes and you'll go on with the rest of your life. Uh, the rest of you, the ones who stay, I'm going to tell you in the next hour everything you need to know about this process, and, um, you know, I, I'd like to do that at some point, too. Yes. If you're doing a nonfiction book and, you know, you walk into the room and there's 125 banker's boxes and they're not indexed um, and you've got two, 200 people to talk to and police records and trial transcripts to go through, you better have a good ability to, um, to get through all of that in a disciplined and a rigorous way or, or else you won't do a good job. You won't tell a good story. I remember the first day of my so-called sabbatical, I, I came to my law office and there was a big row of binders with trial transcripts from the Christopher Black Supergrass trial sitting there. And I sat down and just for a moment I went, where, where do I start? How do I begin? How am I going to you know, get through all of this and then pick out the parts that are really important versus the 99% of it that may not matter? And um, that, that took me longer than a moment. I should say. The people at Morrison and Forrester, Kevin Arts Law Firm in San Francisco were just absolutely wonderful. And here's an example of it. When I went up there in 2016 to, to go through their materials, which was over 100 boxes, um, I spent several days. I picked out what I want, and I asked their copy center to scan it all and make it word searchable. They did that. A few days later, I got a disk with all of that data loaded onto there, all word searchable. They never sent me a bill, and, you know, that was really nice of them. That's fantastic. God bless them. Well, thank you so much for doing the show. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much for joining. Well, Mark, thanks a million. Really appreciated um, getting to meet you, and I, uh, I'm looking forward to listening to your podcast. 